So listen, Easter is about a lot of things. Easter is about lilies and dresses and hope and new life and choirs and peeps. But you know, at its base, at ground level, before any Easter is about anything else, it is about an actual event in human history. Jesus of Nazareth, who healed the sick with unparalleled power, who welcomed outcasts with unsurpassed compassion, who proclaimed liberty to the captives, was betrayed with a kiss. He was tried unjustly by the religious people in collusion with the government officials. And he was put through the rigors of crucifixion. He died and he was buried in a tomb. But three days later, God raised Jesus physically and bodily from the dead because death could not hold him. But you know, we gather today along with literally two point something billion people all over the planet from different language and cultures and people groups and ethnicities to declare that God has raised Jesus from the dead, not as a mere fact of human history, but because this reality has a transformative power in human life. And today what I want to do is I just want to invite you to consider a little passage of Scripture with me that helps us reflect on the transformative power that was unleashed in the world on that first Easter morning. And interestingly, the passage I want to look at with you does not uh, occur on Easter morning. It actually comes from an ancient prophet about 500 years before the events of the resurrection from the prophet Ezekiel. And it, it takes place where, where the, 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 the prophet is given this vision. It's a disturbing and somewhat creepy vision of a dark valley with bones. And I want to just reflect with you on these bones today. And number one, I want you to note in the text a question that God asks about the bones Second, a command that he gives to speak over the bones. And thirdly, we're going to see the power that causes the bones to come back to life. Notice first the question that is raised about the bones. Look at what it says. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. Here's what it says. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. So he's given a vision in a dark valley. Dark valleys are oftentimes metaphors for dark places we find ourselves in in life. And then it says this, that this valley was even worse than all of that because this was a valley that was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. So he gives, he's given this vision of a dark valley that is covered with human bones. And there are two things that are noteworthy about these bones. He says, number one, they were very many. And in my mind, I, I almost picture, you know, something from a scene from an Indiana Jones movie. You know, like Indiana Jones and the Valley of Bones. We could bring out Harrison Ford at 78 years old out of retirement to do that one, couldn't we? Come on. But he says, number one, there's very many bones. But then the second thing he says is that the bones are very dry. These are dry bones. 
Now, nobody likes things dry. I don't like my meat dry. I don't like the cake dry. If you're planting some vegetables, you don't want the soil dry. Because when the moisture has evaporated, when it's bone dry, you can't have life. And here, the prophet is given a vision of a valley flooded with bones that are very, very dry. A little bit later, he says the meaning of all of this. He says that this valley of dry bones is a metaphor for human life. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He said to them, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. So he's basically saying, look, this valley of dry bones is a metaphor For human life, specifically here, the nation of Israel, when we find ourselves in a place of utter hopelessness, where it seems like there is no future, where it seems like there's just no hope. Now, for Israel, their season of a dark valley covered in bones of hopelessness was connected to actual historical events surrounding their own life. Israel, at one point in their history, they had a king, and they had land, and they had a temple, and they had the promises of God, and the favor of God, and the blessings of God. But then in 587 BC, the unthinkable happened, and the imperial power of the day, who had the largest military and the largest economy of the day, Babylon, invaded Jerusalem in order to colonize the people, to extract resources from their land, and to take the best talent and to bring it back into Babylon and to put it in the service of the empire. And I'm sure they had some sort of myth of Babylonian supremacy. They were going to take these uncivilized Jews and they were going to give them an education in Babylonian literature and wisdom and all of that, and they were going to use them. But of course, for Israel, this was a crushing defeat. And everything that gave them meaning in life, their language, their culture, their food, their dance, their songs, their God, their temple, all of it seemed to have all of a sudden been washed away and they were left without hope. And the prophet has given this vision to say, this is Israel now without hope. And of course, hopelessness is not something that was unique to Israel. Hopelessness is something that human beings just wrestle with. There are seasons in our life, maybe because the marriage has fallen apart, and we wonder, is there any hope? Is there any future? Maybe it's the thoughts that occur to your head when you're lying in bed at night, and you're just overwhelmed with how pathetic you feel your life has become. Maybe no job. Maybe you look in the mirror and you just hear the voice that says ugly and loser and pathetic. But we can find ourselves in places where we have lost hope. And this is Israel, a valley of dry bones, lost hope. It's interesting, you know, in the ancient world, a valley of dry bones didn't just symbol hopelessness, but for them, it would have symbolized the curse of God. 
You see, the worst thing that could happen in the ancient world is for you not to be given a proper burial and for your body to be strewn out there, left to be scavenged by wild beasts. It would be a great shame in honor-shame culture. It would be a great desecration and it would be the ultimate sign of God-forsakenness that you were under curse, that whatever was happening to you was your fault. And this is, of course, what Israel was feeling there in exile They felt like we are in this place because of our own stupidity. We have come to the result of our own foolish decisions. And of course, Israel, again, is not the first or the last people that have found themselves in places where it just seems like life has no future, no job prospects, no dates, uh, no hope. You feel unwanted, you feel unloved. You can't break that loop in your head of the voices of despair, and you find yourself wrestling with anxiety and depression, and so you pour yourself another drink, or you hurt yourself, or you starve yourself, or you pop another pill, or you just entertain yourself to death because you want to do something to drown out the voice of despair and depression and anxiety. And here's the question that God asked the prophet in that state. He says, can these bones live. And do you see what he's asking? You know, sometimes we ask God our own questions. God, why is this happening? When are you going to do something? What is wrong? God, do something. But here, Ezekiel's not the one asking the questions. Here in our passage, God asks us a question. And it's interesting because surely God knows the answer. Look at what it says in the text. Uh, God says to the prophet, he says, can these bones live? And the prophet says, oh Lord, you know. God, how are you asking me that question? God, you know whether or not these bones can live. But I think the point of the question is to make us reflect on our own despair. And I just wonder how many of us might have the courage to turn off the incessant noise to shut down the technology, to let the screen go black long enough to ask real, meaningful questions about ultimate reality. Can these bones live? Are we simply the tale of an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing? Or is there possibility of hope in this world? So the prophet is asked that question. But secondly, I want you to see he's given a command. And this is to me the most surprising thing about this passage. Then he said to me, God commands me, he says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So here the prophet, the preacher, is called to preach a sermon to a valley of bones. He's called to speak words of life over a valley of death. And I found that striking because in a minute, we're going to look at the power, which is the power of God that makes these bones actually come back to life. But it's interesting, God invites a human partner in his work of bringing life to the dead bones. In other words, some of you came in today and you are at a place where faith is alive, 
Hope is real. You know gratitude and wonder and joy. It hasn't evaporated up. You are not a valley of dry bones. You have life and vitality. There's a role that you can play toward people who find themselves in a valley of dry bones. And you can play the role of Ezekiel in this text. You can speak words of life over valleys of death. This week I received a text from an old friend of mine in Albuquerque. Uh, he's a, he was a, a good friend, a neighbor of ours, and he's an atheist. And he and I, we always talked about doing this um, podcast. We always like talking about religion and politics. And so we wanted to start a podcast entitled uh, Impolite Dinner Conversations. <laughs> that would have been so dangerous in 2020. Kind of get a witness on the danger of that in 20... Come on, people. Yeah. Um, but I, I received an interesting text from him because he, he sent me a five-minute clip from a speech that was given by a Jesuit priest whose name is Father Greg Boyle, who runs a ministry in Los Angeles called Homeboy Industries that works with gang members. And I want to read you just a little portion from this speech that Father Greg Boyle gave. Uh, he said that in his 30-year history of working with gang members at Homeboy, he said there was one man that stood out, one young man that stood out to him. His name was Mario. And he said, Mario is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked at Homeboy Industries. His arms are sleeved out, his neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved and covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, even his eyelids that say the end, so that when he's laying in a coffin, there's no doubt. And he said, uh, he, he invited Mario to go and to give a commencement speech or, or to give a speech to his alma mater about the work they were doing in Los Angeles with Homeboy Industries and he took Mario and a couple other of the gang members and he said this, um, he said, I'd never been in public with Mario and we were walking around and people, they were like this. Uh, he, he said, mothers are clutching their kids more closely when we walked by. And he said, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anyone there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say Father Greg Boyle They'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter of their cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So he said that the time came for their, their, their speech or their talk to begin. And he said there's a thousand people in this auditorium. And at the end, he invites uh, the, the gang members to come up and for five minutes to share their stories. And he said they were all terrified, but they did a good job. And then he, 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 he opened it up for Q&A. And he said a woman stood up and said, yeah, I got a question for Mario. So it's the first question out of the gate and it goes to Mario. And Mario steps up to the microphone and he's tall and skinny and he's clutching the microphone and he's terrified. And he says, yes. And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and daughter about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? 
And Marianne clutches the microphone. He's just terrified. And he's trembling and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with what he's going to say. And, and finally, he blurts out, I just... And he stops and he retreats back to his microphone, clutching, terrified, retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands and now it's her turn to cry. And she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out like you? You are loving, you're kind, you're gentle, you're wise. I hope your kids turn out like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is to hold his face in his hands so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of perfect strangers had returned him to himself, had returned him to life because somebody who had faith and hope spoke good news over him. Mario, you are loved. Mario, you matter. Mario, God is for you and not against you. And so the prophet is called to speak. You and I are called to speak words of life where there is death in people's hearts and lives. You know, someone said words are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively use our words with dis of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help and to heal, to hinder or to hurt, to harm, to humiliate or to humble. And so the prophet is told to speak words of life over this valley of death. But of course, the words of the prophet are not enough. Something more is needed if these bones are going to come together and be covered in sinew and to be then covered with flesh and to come to life, they need the breath of the true and living God to bring resurrection. And listen to what it says. This says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, get this, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. So he said to him, so he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slains. No doubt there's an echo here of that wind, that breath that goes back to the opening chapters of the Bible where the breath of God brooded over the dark, chaotic abyss and life came. And where the breath of God breathed into the lump of dust and the, and the man became a living being. And here after, 
after all hope is lost, here in the face of utter despair, in the face of real human injustice and violence and darkness and evil and pain, here and even here, especially here, the breath of God comes because it is the valley of bones that becomes the venue of the life-giving resurrection power of God. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And the Lord God said, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. You know, this power at work in the valley of dry bones this breath that is brooding over the darkness and the despair, this power and this presence that brings resurrection, this promise that was foreseen 500 years before Christ became flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ actually entered with us into the valley of dry bones into the very place of the cursed. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ entered into our curse. He entered into our failures. He entered into our despair. He became subject to injustice, to a government that did him wrong, to religious leaders that would betray him and didn't really care about God. All they cared about was their religious games. And he was there crucified, entering into the valley of bones. He was put into a tomb. But early on Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning, that powerful brooding breath of God breathed into the tomb of Jesus and God raised Jesus from the dead. In raising Jesus from the dead, God is revealing to us his verdict. His verdict is that darkness and death and despair and hopelessness and injustice and evil will not have the last word in God's world. God has defeated it with his own cross-shaped, self-giving, sin-bearing love. And God has overturned the verdict of all of the Pilots and Herods and Caesars that abuse power for their own benefit. He has overturned all of that and he has begun new creation right in the middle of this old world. And listen, on Easter morning, the news that we hear is that this power that bursts forth from the tomb on resurrection morning is a power that is alive and at work in this world today. God's love in Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection is available here on this sunny Sunday Sunday morning on Easter in 2021. In other words, the power of God is available to you to make you come alive. In other words, Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. You know, have you ever felt like things could never change? 
like you're just stuck in the valley with all of the bones. And the voices are constant for many of you, saying the way things are now is the way they will always be. And so let's just say you come from a family with a history of dysfunction and abuse, and the voice says you'll continue that legacy and pass it on to your children. Or you're predisposed to addiction and depression because of genetics or some traumatic childhood experience, and the voice says, good luck, you are bound to act out your biology. Or you're trapped in a pattern of failed relationships, and the voice says, get used to it. You will never be loved. You will never move on. You'll never develop intimacy. Or you're plagued with guilt about your past or anxiety about your future. Or you're just uncomfortable in your own skin and the voice says, sorry, that is just the way it is. Are you familiar with those voices at all? They're strong and they're relentless. And yet there was a new voice, a new word, a new power that traveled out of that Judean tomb so long ago and it's made its way through the ages and across the continents and into the 21st century and even into Los Angeles and Pasadena and Sierra Madre. And the good news is this, Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life. He changed my life. He changed so many of your lives. Jesus can change your life. If... If we let him. And that if, it's a big if. And it's a scary if. You know, um, I'm now teaching our second uh, oldest daughter to drive. Yes, you can pray for me. (laughs) And... You know, I, I will say, some of, you, some of you parents know this. The scariest moment in your life sometimes is when you move out of the driver's seat and you let someone else get into that driver's seat, namely your 16-year-old daughter, in my case, because you lose control. And it's scary not to be in control of your own life, isn't it? But it's only scary if the wrong person is in the driver's seat. And the invitation is to let the creator of all things, that sovereign power that called the universe into existence, the power that became flesh and blood in Jesus and who used his self-giving power to destroy death and darkness and to bring new life to us. And the invitation is to get out of the driver's seat and to let him move in. And to say, Jesus, take control. Jesus, I let go of the pills. I let go of my strategies for dealing with my own issues. Jesus, I welcome your authority, your life into my life. And when you do that, Jesus can change your life. I want to invite our band to come up. And as they're coming up, I just want to share this. You know, um, I don't know why, but this, this vision of a valley full of dry bones, it, 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 it reminded me, it just made me think about my mom. I know that sounds bad all of a sudden. To, um, mom, you're watching. I don't, just listen. 
what, what made me think of my mom is that when my mom was four years old, her dad died. And then within about a year, her mom had remarried uh, a very prominent physician, very successful OBGYN. Everybody raved about his bedside manner. But when he got home, he started to drink. And he was an abusive, mean drunk. And here my mom, whose four-year-old self, you know, is growing now up in this home where she's lost her dad. This new man has come in, and, and he is this abusive, mean person. She describes moments of, uh, of, of, of coming downstairs and seeing uh, her, her stepfather with a wristwatch around his fist beating up my grandmother. There, there's another incident of her brother, after he got out of the military, came home with a gun and threatened to kill my stepfather because of his abusive behavior. But you know, the natural course of my mom's life, I mean, this happens so often. Those who have been in situations where there's abuse, they're just, they're just wrecked and, and it's so hard to pull out of that and, and you can just be overcome and, and with despair and hopelessness and depression. But when my mom was in her early 20s, Jesus came in and changed her life and he set my mom on a completely different trajectory. And my mom has been radically transformed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. There are a few people that I know that are more hospitable, more welcoming, more gracious, more forgiving and accepting than my mom. And it's because Jesus changed her life. And I just want you to know, I don't know where you're at today. Wherever you're at, Jesus can change your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just pray that your power would be at work among us today in a fresh way. For those who know you, for those who do not yet know you, I just pray that you would open us up, O oh God, to your cross-shaped, sin-bearing, resurrecting love. And would your resurrection power come in and make our faith and our hope and our wonder and our gratitude and our joy come alive in fresh ways. God, come and do that work among us, we pray. Amen.